But I do want to encourage the importance of the, the series. There's a greater strength, you might say, in having this in the context of the rest of the teaching. So, uh, for example, uh, faith, which we talked at length about, is a pretty important aspect of the Christian faith. Salvation, which we'll talk about today, pretty important aspect of the Christian faith. All of these are individual truths, we might say, but they, they paint a larger picture of the way God is working in our lives and in the way, uh, particularly with this series, in the way that God sort of equips us to to live in this world in ways that honor him for the rest of our days. And so today, we're studying the helmet of salvation in our Standing Firm, Armor of God series. And salvation is a foundational doctrine in the Christian faith. It's a belief central not only to our faith, but to the mission of Jesus, what he did, and the mission that he left us after he ascended into heaven. Right now, we believe Jesus sits at the right hand of God, and in his timing, he will return and bring back the kingdom in full force on this earth. But at this point, there is still a mission that he has left us, one that he began on earth and entrusted with us until his return. So important this is, if you read the Gospel of John, Jesus literally tells us that everything he did, everything he said, every miracle culminating in the cross, everything was done so that we would find salvation, eternal life in him. What he did was a a direct conduit to reveal to us God our Father in heaven. Very, very important. That's the culmination of all of his work. And so generally speaking, in the Bible, the word salvation, and this is probably too maybe in some of our our conversations, the word salvation usually refers to being saved or redeemed from some type of a serious peril. And in this case, particularly connected to the teachings prior to this series, the breastplate of righteousness is going to be a very important thing for us to discuss. We have discussed it already, but I want to just make a quick connection here this morning. We learned when we talked about the breastplate of righteousness that it provides several things for us in life. One of the things that it allows us to have is a, a meaningful relationship with God through Christ. In other words, we, we wear that armor so that we can fully rest in the fact that there is no human righteousness under heaven that can earn the, the merit or the favor of God. We rest in the righteousness of Jesus. We, we wear his righteousness like armor around our hearts so that we don't fall victim to the problems of legalism or moralism or pressure cooker religion where we have to believe that we have to perform to earn God's love or fill in the blank on any of the other inappropriate understandings of Christianity. The breastplate of righteousness fully allows us to relate to God in this way. What I want to do here, the connection I want to make is that one of the benefits of that righteousness is that it also excludes us from from God's judgment when it comes to sin and evil. We talked at length about sin. We'll briefly discuss it today. But in those teachings on the breastplate of righteousness, sin was addressed in, in very direct and clear ways. So I'm not going to revisit that for the sake of redundancy, but there is a connection here that Paul is making. While some in the modern world don't like the idea of a God who can judge right and wrong, that's a very, that's a very popular idea today, particularly in the western side of the world, the one we live in. Um, it is an absolutely necessary reality that God be able to do so. For a few reasons. The most obvious is that the Bible regularly tells us God is a God of righteousness. And what that means is that he he cannot allow, I want you to think about this, he cannot allow unaddressed, outstanding wrongs to, to be left unaddressed. It has to be dealt with one way or the other. We either look to Jesus for those things to be dealt with, or there is a there is a justice consequence, is what we would say here. And that's one of the main spiritual problems that the Helmet of Salvation addresses in our lives and the greater story of humanity. One thing I want to say here, just by by nature of sort of the context of this idea, I think it is very easy, 
maybe not easy, that's too strong of a word. I think it's easier, let me put it this way. For those of us that live in a, in a world, and especially in a country, not perfect, but we do live in a place where, where we seek justice in things and where it often does prevail. Not, oft, not always, know this, we don't have a perfect justice system, but nonetheless, we have a good one, one of the best ones in the world. And so I think it's very easy when you live in a place where, where we are trying to deal with justice to have the freedom or the luxury to not really like it, okay? Or to feel like, uh, you know, there should be no God or no person that judges me. I think, though, if you were to go to other parts of the world, and I've been to a handful of these places, where there is no justice, it's interesting, the people don't have this, um, this problem. This is not what they long for. They don't, they don't philosophize about a God who can deal with right and wrong. They wonder when the day will come when their justice is served, when whatever wrong they have dealt with or, or experienced, when will somebody come in and actually deal with that? And so I just want to point out that this idea of justice or righteousness there are lots of ways that people all around the world can view it. In a culture like ours, the predominant understanding is that we don't necessarily care for it, i.e., we have these, like, don't judge me type of ideas. Although, as I joke often in a rather serious way, I think Twitter has shown us that in one sense we can verbalize the, the lack of desire for judgment, but then Twitter is sort of like a rolling guillotine that does nothing but behead people 24-7 all day long. So there's a great inconsistency in this, okay? So one of the things we have to know is that the helmet of salvation, it actually is one of the main reasons we avoid the judgment and the justice of God because Jesus has taken that for us. Tons of teaching on that in the breastplate of righteousness. However, keeping us from judgment is not the only thing that it deals with. If we only looked at it from that angle, we would really begin missing out on the sort of the prism of what the helmet of salvation provides for us. It, it's a multifaceted tool. It's much more powerful than just delivering us from the judgment of God. Paul wants us to see that when we wear this helmet of salvation, we're literally wearing a gift from God that has a, a, a past tense application. We look to the cross and are redeemed, forgiven of our sin. But if you've ever lived for Jesus, you know that we, we still have a host of other perils, fiery darts, as Paul puts it, that can plague us, past, present, and future. It has an effect on our lives. Sin, problems, trial, all this stuff. And it is to these perils that we'll turn our attention to over these next weeks. I want to sort of spend some time talking about how Salvation is not just about knowing Jesus. Fundamentally, it is that. And I don't say that in a derogatory way. That's a critical truth. But it has such a deep application beyond that. That's sort of like ground one on the floor of what it means to pursue God. And I'd like to spend some time over these next weeks talking about how we build a, a stronger house on top of the foundation of this helmet. And this leads me to the only truth, the main truth I want to share with you today. The helmet of salvation is a gift from God that saves us from the penalty and the problem of sin. And I want to reread what was just read to you for context, because there's just a short snippet here that Paul mentions. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, what I just discussed, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And then he goes on to say, take the helmet of salvation. And after this talks about the spirit, the, the sword of the spirit, the, the Bible, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. And so we are talking about salvation. And while the gift of salvation is beautiful, this is one way to look at it, right? And it shows how much God cares for us. It is a truth that carries with it a very hard-edged implication. And here's what I mean by this. I want to give you an illustration. 
um, and I want to give you a physical one, because oftentimes our ability to understand physical ailment or illness is a key understanding, a, a key gateway, you might say, to help us understand spiritual metaphors, and that's what we're talking about here. Let's say that at some point in your life, some of you have already experienced this, some of you may be experiencing it now, and maybe someday down the road you will experience this, but let's just say that you developed a serious and somewhat chronic illness, one that took a very serious toll on your body, it was costly physically, but the nature of it was also incredibly costly you know, from a financial perspective, and we know that a lot of chronic illness is very expensive to treat. And so even though you know this illness is treatable, and that you can still live a, a meaningful life as you deal with it, there is likely going to be some discouragement if you realize that this is something that can be treated, but you don't necessarily have the resources to pay for the care. And so one day as you are going on with your life, someone tells you that they would like to talk to you, and you spend some time with them, maybe you have a lunch with them, and you get together and they tell you that the reason they wanted to get together with you is because they are really sorry, there's a great devil, a level of empathy here with what you're dealing with, and they know that it's not easy, and they tell you that they, they want to help you deal with this. They know that you should not go this road alone, and for them, resources are, are not a problem. And so in short and in a very diplomatic way, they tell you that they're going to take care of your care in its entirety. They commit to pay for the entirety of your care. And your friend says that my gift to you is for as long as you need it, I'm going to provide this for you. Now, I used a variation of this illustration a couple of months ago, but we're going we're gonna to focus on it from a different way today. This is a pretty powerful story. It's uh, a reality. Some of you have experienced blessings like this. People have supported you during times where you could not care for yourself in whatever way that looks like. I know that this has been the case in my life. These are the places where incredible and meaningful relationship really begin to reveal themselves in the way of the kingdom. So try to take this generalization and maybe apply it in a specific way in your heart. This is a story filled with sacrifice, love, with care, with hardship, obviously, and it's an incredible gift that you could never pay back. Even if you wanted to pay it back, you could not pay it back. That's the beauty of this gift. But there is also a profound tension in the reality of this gift. Somebody could say, and I think you could make a pretty good case for this, that this is one of the most amazing gifts somebody's ever been given. It's a virtually priceless gift. Not only does it preserve life, but the financial cost is almost limitless here when it comes to what a serious illness can cost to treat. That's the beautiful side of this, right? There's, a, there's an incredible gift of generosity. However, the implication of this gift is somewhat of a painful one, if we're going to be honest. This gift is necessary only because there is an underlying sickness. Now think about this. This is not the kind of gift you and I would seek after. It's not the kind of gift we would ask for on a birthday or for a holiday, uh, a Christmas or something. It is a gift offered to us because there is a serious need in life. It's a gift offered out of necessity. In fact, it's fair to say if we're going to be honest, this is a gift we might have to receive, but it's one that if we had the option to, we would prefer to not have it at all. Because with it is the reality that something is very wrong physically. There is a chronic illness that demands some type of gift to be able to deal with it. That's a pretty common problem for a lot of people today. They're, you know, Maybe they have great medical treatment in an area of their life, and they're thankful for it, but the truth is that they wish they didn't have to have great medical treatment in their life because it would just be better to not have the chronic illness to begin with. The same reality is true when we talk about the gift of salvation, the helmet of salvation. It is a gift, a beautiful one, a powerful one, given to us because it deals with a serious problem. It's a gift that is complicated. No less beautiful, but complicated. And the fact that Jesus himself says God has given him the authority to save us from the penalty, from the problem of sin in multiple places, 
This implies some very serious things. What we're talking about regarding the helmet of salvation and the teachings of Jesus and the rest of the Bible in its entirety. Some of the things we learn about the gift of salvation and the problem it corrects is no one is immune to or exempt from the problem of sin. We might walk around earth thinking this, but the truth is that this is not true. This is a controversial and somewhat hard-edged truth found throughout the Bible that says, there are lots of synonyms to this, eternal life, salvation, redemption, relationship. There's lots of ways the Bible describes what salvation accomplishes for us. You can sort of choose your own, your own metaphor this morning. But what it is very clear about is that Jesus is the centerpiece of this whole thing. This is a truth that some people today feel is a bit ridiculous and a bit arcane. But I think if you look at the unresolved wrongs in the world, the human heart to a certain degree cries out for the day when they're corrected. And in some Christian circles... People act as if teachings like this aren't even in the Bible or central to the life and teaching of Jesus. The reason why we opened with, you know, a sort of a paraphrase from what Jesus said in the Gospel of John is because he was unashamed about the fact that this is true. Because the beautiful gift connected to the problem of sin is what he wanted us to know about. And so as believers, if we ignore such a serious matter like this, spiritual and physical matter, it really becomes the equivalent of a person, of the person in the story I just shared, is sort of dealing with a chronic illness, and what they think is, listen, I'm just going to deal with this by trying to forget the fact that I suffer from it. That's what happens when we deny this. We might have polished exteriors that can actually cloak some of this, but the truth is that we all struggle with this. And the, the, the more confident we are, I think, in proclaiming that, the more likely we are to not only overcome some of these struggles, but to really rest in the grace of Jesus. In other words, to really recognize what it means to wear his salvation to be redeemed and not to feel like you have to redeem yourself. And so medically speaking, it would be a terrible idea for you to bury your head in the sand if there was something serious going on in your life. It will without question, you know, the best case scenario is it deteriorates the quality of your life. Most likely with chronic illness, when they're left, it's left uncared for, it can actually end your life early. The recognition of the illness and the willingness to treat it is a critical part of how one gets healthy when it comes to our bodies. And so we cannot ignore our physical symptoms in life. We actually have to seek to understand them and address them. And the same is true when it comes to the spiritual realities of sin and salvation in Scripture. And so I want to say sort of one last thing here before we move on. Contrary to some of the imbalanced teachings on sin and salvation, and there are lots of them out there, if you've ever sort of been on the seesaw of this stuff being inappropriately taught or communicated, it's a very hard place to live. I want to just sort of maybe napalm a lot of that by giving us one direct truth about what this does communicate. Contrary to some of the imbalanced teachings on sin and salvation, the truth of salvation was not given to us so God could rub our nose in condemnation. That's not the point of this. That's not what Jesus is doing on earth. Rather, he's, he's telling us about the problem of condemnation and sin. There's no doubt about that. But the story does not end there. The idea of this teaching given to us is so that God could compel hearts The idea is that when we hear about this problem, as deep and significant as it is, and we recognize what Jesus did to redeem us from it, God's ultimate desire is that this would compel even the hardest hearts, the ones that are resistant to God, to believe and find life. That's the point of this. It is not for God to remind us perpetually of what we're not in, not yet in Him. The desire of God is for us to look to Jesus and to find out what we can be in him, that we would experience the fullness of life in Christ. And so Paul wants us to see that everything Jesus did, this is the idea of the helmet of salvation. He's sort of reiterating what Jesus has already said. Everything was done so that we would find life through salvation in God, that we would look to Jesus and he would truly be our king. 
And this foundational Christian doctrine, like so many others in the Bible, will always appear to have a hard edge. The most significant truths in the Bible are abrasive, if we're going to be very honest about this. When we first interact with them, they are like pointy edges. They can be hard, and they even hurt at times. But the more you persist in them, the more you open your mind and your heart to let Jesus show you the beauty in them, in this case, life, that hard edge actually can become something beautiful. The edges are maybe blunted to the degree where you actually see the purpose and the meaning behind them. And in the case of salvation, the hard edge of sin is meant to be a catalyst that leads us to the amazing grace of what Jesus has done for us. This is just what we just sang about. You know, think about what it means to sing Jesus has paid it all for us. That song is written because somebody deeply understood what we are talking about today. And they put to music words that were like the battle cry of their heart, the recognition of what God has done for them. And so this morning, I really want you to ask yourself if you've put on the helmet of salvation in this fundamental way. Have you experienced Jesus' forgiveness of sin? Because if you haven't, you're going to miss out on another blessing the helmet provides. And this will be the springboard for what we talk about in the weeks that follow. When we talk about salvation, this is especially true in the, in the modern American church, for about a hundred years, just about, salvation was pretty much just discussed from the angle of Jesus dying on the cross for your sin and you being able to dwell with him in eternity for heaven. That's a pretty significant truth. But I think what has happened when it comes to teachings like this is that at times, I've said this before, heaven, as beautiful as that reality is, is too far for some of us to wait for, right? If you are struggling with something today or you're discouraged today or depressed or down or anxious or whatever, the beauty of heaven does have an end time hope, what we call an eschatological hope. We know one day things will be utterly right. But that is not necessarily helpful in the moment for you. I'm not saying heaven isn't helpful. I'm just saying we need more than just eternity. There is a thing we call physical life right now. And in that bridge, uh, the bridge between finding Christ and spending an eternity with him and each other in heaven, there is a lot in the Bible that communicates this to us, these truths about how to live vibrant lives now and on earth. And so heaven is equally as important as life is on earth. In fact, if you are in Jesus, this is albeit in an embryonic way, the beginning of heaven. We are already in the presence of Jesus and each other. This will just be sort of perfected, you might say, when he returns and makes things all right, when he brings us home. And so I want to share an important truth about how salvation matters in the now, right now. The helmet of salvation gives us an authority, and I don't use that word lightly, to work through the often crippling effects sin can have on our lives. This is why I talk about sin in the past, the present, and the future. Sin, in any way, and in any regard, it affects us in deeply negative ways. In Philippians 2.12, this is a verse I taught in at length years ago when we taught through Philippians, but I want to read to you another way that Paul describes salvation. We hear it from Jesus' angle. He's writing about it in Ephesians. And here he says in Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my dear friends, he's speaking to a bunch of men and women who love Christ, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here Paul layers something interesting onto this idea of the helmet of salvation. To put it in his armor of God analogy, we might say that the, the helmet of salvation is something we have to make sure we are wearing. Because I do think, um, not necessarily in the ultimate redemption way, meaning if you have truly been, if, if God has put the helmet of salvation on your head, if you have looked to Christ and trusted in him, and I mean deeply, significantly, meaningfully, truthfully with your heart, there is nothing that can remove the grace and the presence of Jesus from your life. However, in the dailies, the way we live every single day, I think it's very easy to remove the helmet 
and to start functioning in a way that is disconnected from that, that permanent truth that Jesus gives us. And a really good way to understand what I'm trying to talk about now, I'm just going to shamelessly share with you an illustration that I took from Tim Keller years ago. I shared it with you a couple years ago, and I want to share it with you again. It is the best illustration about what we're talking about today, and that's why I don't feel the need to have another one. It is profound. And it's this idea of what happens when we think about, for example, a house fire, okay? Our homes, at least the theory behind home, is that this is a place that is safe. It is a place that provides comfort. It is a place where you can have a long day and, you know, get on your couch and just the, the, the aura of what home provides for us is security and safety. In a perfect world, this is what home is meant to be. And so think about how catastrophic it would be to, to lose your home in some natural event. Like, for example, the folks in the Bahamas right now that have you know, many of them have seen their entire world wrecked. Home is gone. Um, having living, lived in New Orleans, my wife and I were personal recipients of this reality when our apartment building was about 14 feet underwater after Hurricane Katrina. There's something that we can often take for granted when it comes to this idea of home. And until you lose it, it, it you really don't realize how valuable it actually is. And so I want to talk about, from Keller's angle, this idea of home and a house fire. If you think about a house fire, there are truly two stages to it. If you were to see your house burning, okay, the first, the first reality here is that you have to put the fire out. If you've ever seen a fire in any way, it's impossible for us to put a fire out on our own, especially a raging one. We have whole, you know, our taxes, a sizable portion of them, go to these things called fire departments, which have highly trained men and women who use very specialized equipment to deal with serious issues like this. And this is why you would be crazy to try and address a house fire on your own in, in, the, in your house. You dial 911, you call in a very strong reinforcement to deal with that. This is an interesting way to think about some of what we're talking about. That problem of a raging house fire is too big for us to handle alone. And this is the same reality when it comes to the way Jesus deals with the problem of sin in our life. The fire of what sin has done in the world is too big for us to deal with on our own. And so on the cross, he extinguishes all the flames of judgment, of condemnation, of guilt, of shame, the insecurity that can often causes us. All of those things he puts out. That's the first sort of like salvo of what Jesus deals with on the cross. This is the helmet of salvation. Jesus redeems us. That said... There is a second stage in how you deal with a house fire that is just as critical. It is the actual rebuilding process because none of us want to remain homeless. The battle cry of the human heart is to, is to find home again. So how many of you would be content if, let's just say, your house was lost you, in, in a fire? You would not just be okay with shaking the hands of the fire department, looking at the, the shell of your home and then calling that home. You would not. You would look at that and think, oh my gosh, what's the, what's the next step? Putting the fire out is critical, but there has to be a next step to return us to the place of, of comfort. So no one moves right back into the house after a fire because you can't live in the house. It is, it, the effects of that fire are unlivable. For a season, it is actually not proper for you to be in that home. And this is why we have things like homeowner's insurance. After the flames are put out, after the effects of the damage are realized, the unbearable odors, the loss of contents, the things that matter to you, family heirlooms that you care about, somebody has to deal with that stuff. And this is where I think the helmet of salvation is critically important for us. We cannot just see it as something Jesus did for us. It is critical that we recognize that. But the helmet of salvation is not just a past tense event for us. It is something that Jesus is working out perpetually in our lives every day. That's what Paul says in Philippians. There is an equally important use of the helmet of salvation, which provides us something Paul is getting at in Philippians 2.12. 
He's saying, and if you think about this from Ephesians, the armor of God is given to us so that we would function in the everydays of life, meaning we would have a vibrant life, a fulfilled life in Jesus in every single matter of life, whether it is massive or mundane, in the cosmic or the small. The, the idea behind the armor of God is that we are wearing something, a spiritual armor that allows us to thrive on earth. So salvation has to mean something much more than just when we're with Christ in heaven. What he's saying here is when it comes to our salvation, yes, Jesus permanently deals with the fire of sin through his death and his resurrection. He nailed sin to the cross and addressed it. He gives us this gift to treat and eventually cure the chronic illness of sin. That's the beautiful foundational idea of salvation. But even after receiving the gift, the effects of the illness, and this is where I'm going with this, the effects of the illness don't always go away. Most of us will spend the rest of our days sorting out the effects of what that sin has done to our lives. And if you want true emotional, true physical, true spiritual health and peace, then I think the scripture makes, I don't think, the scripture does make a confident argument that we cannot avoid those things. Jesus does not avoid sin. He goes to the cross to deal with it. And he equally wants to help us deal with the effects that it has on our lives whether they might be significant or small in the economy of the human mind, we have to be mindful that any type of sin can restart the house fire in our hearts, especially if there's something significant. And this is what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because if you don't, while the house of your heart will never be fully disconnected from God again, if you are truly in Jesus, nothing can take you away from Jesus. The effects of that fire, though, can make your life the kind of place you don't want to dwell in. You're looking at the shell of what should be life, and it's a house you don't want to be in anymore. And that's when the, the hard emotions that the cross does deal with, shame, guilt, insecurity, fear, anxiety, all of these things can creep their way back into our hearts in ways that are paralyzing. This is where the helmet of salvation is important. And I want to layer upon this one more beautiful truth God gives us to live in ways that are meaningful to overcome these challenges. Not only are we given this helmet of salvation, but Jesus tells us in his absence, he's provided us his Holy Spirit. So it's sort of like even in the days when we, like the helmet's crooked or it's fallen off, or some days we remove it and shelve it, the power of the Holy Spirit, God's perpetual presence in the world, is constantly reminding us and trying to reseat that helmet on our heads. God is fully aware that we're going to have moments where we doubt these things. And he's provided a way for us to doubt the doubt. This is where the power of the Holy Spirit plays a significant role in sanctifying our lives. The armor of God is given to us to become more like Jesus. And not only are we given these truths, these, these authoritative pieces of spiritual armor, we're also given God's presence in the Holy Spirit to apply them in the moments of our life where we cannot. In fact, if you want to stand firm through the trials and challenges of this world, the flaming arrows of the enemy, the, high, the fiery darts, I want to encourage you to think about the way God works these things out in your life and in mine. These aren't just like things that are put on a shelf, these pieces of armor. They're things that the Holy Spirit is literally, literally fitting to our bodies. And Jesus himself says if we, if we want to, to flourish in him, then we have to understand the purpose and the importance of his Holy Spirit. For example, many of us, this is especially true when it comes to the lingering effects of problems and challenges we have in our lives. Many of us who come to Christ, we do come to him with significant hurts, failures in our past. We come to him carrying past shame or guilt. And maybe it's because of the way we treated people. This is perhaps the most common one, somebody that we claim to love. Maybe it's, it's challenges we've had with friends or family or spouse. Maybe it's because we can look at seasons of our life and they are marked by a, a lack of, of self-control. Or we have seasons in our life that were just so blue 
They were, they were joyless that we wish we could redeem that season, but we can't because, you know, time stops for nobody. It just moves on. Maybe, maybe we look back at eras of our life and we wish there was a, a greater recognition of how happy we should have been, but it just wasn't there. Maybe there are seasons in life where anxiety and fear, self-doubt and worry, all of these things sort of define an era of your life you cannot get back. Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum where you don't look back and see things that are blue. Maybe it's too rosy red. Maybe the ideas like uh, pride and arrogance are what have defined the, the moments of your heart. And, and that's obviously equally as dangerous because you can sort of think of yourself too highly in ways that, that eliminate the need for the helmet of salvation or the presence of Jesus in our lives. There are lots of effects that we can discuss. And I like to say that the fire is going to be different for each and every person. But the way we deal with them is not. There is a concrete, resolute, objective reality God gives us here. The way we deal with them is never going to be different. Jesus puts the fire out once and for all on the cross. He provides the helmet of salvation. And he crowns it upon us to protect our mind from all the things that seek to distract us from him. And then we are commanded, according to Paul in Philippians, to wear that helmet in such a way where we are working out, relying on the power of Jesus, the power of his Holy Spirit, to bring about renewal in our lives in these areas. In other words, addressing these areas. And this process is what we call sanctification in the Christian faith. Salvation addresses both of these things. In Christianity, the truths of salvation and sanctification cannot be separated. They often are, but they cannot be separated. We, we might be able to dissect them under heaven you know, with the eloquence of our tongue. We might be able to remove aspects of this from the Scripture and the way we communicate or focus on things, or, or uh, there's a lack of focus on things. But you cannot, if you want any type of theological integrity, disconnect these two ideas from each other. And this is somewhat of a challenge because we are living in a world, I've said this before, where there's a growing sentiment that actually does disconnect these two ideas. We can sort of identify what we read about in Ephesians and love that idea that God takes the judgment from us, but then forget that according to Philippians and other teachings, the very words of Jesus, there's an incredible responsibility applied to our lives in that same area. Because when the judgment goes away, what God is trying to do is perpetually, this never ends, transform us into the image of Christ. So he redeems the problem of sin and then says, hey, I've got a be- an even better option. I- now I'm going to make you like Jesus. I'm going to mold your whole life for the rest of your days. And that's why when it comes to salvation and sanctification, it's ludicrous to disconnect these ideas. Um, everything God did was to draw our attention to Jesus. And everything Jesus does is to draw our attention to God. And everything the Holy Spirit is doing is pointing us to who Jesus is and how he wants to make us more like him so that we can flourish in every area of our life. It isn't enough for God to just put out the fire. He wants to reshape life. These two truths stand as an evidence, a validation of each other. Salvation shapes sanctification. And sanctification is often an evidence of how deeply we understand salvation. Here's the last thing I want to say this morning. I want to utterly clarify what I'm not saying here when we talk about salvation and sanctification and what it means to wear the helmet. It is important to note that one of the clearest marks that Jesus has put the fire of sin out in your life through his salvation is not, I want to say that again, it is not that you no longer struggle with the effects of the fire, with the effects of sin. That is not what this verse is teaching us. Rather, it's that when they come, in whatever form they come, there is a new, there is a newness in us, even if it's just a burgeoning desire to deal with these things in the power of the Holy Spirit. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul uses a pretty interesting analogy to talk about 
pre and post Jesus in our lives. He uses this new man, old man stuff. This idea that there are sort of like two people living in us when we come to Jesus. There is the old person who is sort of marked by the distortion of sin. And then there is this new person who now has this, this unending clarity. This is truly a well that is it's, it's deep enough to outrun your every desire. That's what following Jesus is like. But when you have this desire in your heart, you have the ability to now sense these two, these two tensions in your life, or this major tension of what the old man, the, the Jesusless man desires, and what the new person, the, the, following Christ, the following Christ person desires. This is important for us to understand because these two natures collide at times. There is no effect of the fire if these two, uh, these two sort of personas do not live in us, these spiritual personas. And that collision, as painful as it might be at times, that messiness that it often provides in our lives is one of the greatest evidences that the helmet of salvation is fitted on our head. There is a new idea, a new truth, a new thought, a new perspective, a new way to look at something. Some of the big ones I've said, maybe in moments that we have been defined by selfishness, we start to have these ideas in our minds that, man, I can't treat people like this anymore. Or maybe in the places of our life where, where we were so concerned with just advancing our own causes, we start realizing, man, the world's a big place and there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. And, and I'm in some cir- circles of influence where I can naturally bring the light of Jesus. These two personas collide a lot. And I just want to point out that you should not be down or hard on yourself if you feel the effects of the collision. That is actually a pretty amazing thing. What's happening here, I would actually say there should be greater cause for concern if there is no feeling of the collision. Because if you are in Jesus, but we have no desire to understand salvation, or we have no desire to to live it out in our lives, or we have no desire to, to be in the Word, or to care for our brothers and sisters in Jesus in the community, if we do not desire to pursue the nature of God, if we don't want to serve people, keep in mind all of these lowercase letters, right? I'm not saying we do these things perfectly, but if that other side of us does not exist, if we can leave rooms like this and just get on with our week for 6.95 days and float back up in this place for 0.5 days and and leave without connecting what's going on in this room or in our community groups or in our lives or in our, our personal mission, this really does begin to call into question whether or not we're wearing the helmet of salvation. And what's crazy about this is the helmet of salvation is given to us so that we never have to call into question what Jesus has done. The helmet of salvation is given to us so that we can permanently know what Jesus did, and that cannot be undone. So where there is uncertainty, it is not because of what Jesus has done or is attempting to do in our lives. The uncertainty is coming from our hearts. And God, even in those moments, is kind and gracious. He wants to work in those areas with us. He wants us to be the types of people who are sort of saturated with the words and the deeds of Jesus. And so as we close this morning, I really leave you with a simple question. Ask yourself if, if you're wearing the helmet of salvation. Ask yourself if you're, if you're living in the peace that God loves you and has provided for you this amazing grace, this, this opportunity to not have to bear the burden of his judgment on your own, but to see it laid firmly on the back of Christ. Ask yourself, when you think of this idea of, of salvation and sin and judgment, do you recognize the, the, the challenges it can present in life, how it can rob us of joy, and, and sort of our hope for the future, if we permit it to. And I want you to know that although pain and suffering and evil and trial and temptation are very real things in our world today, we can take hope in knowing that Jesus has said in him, 
those things are not removed yet. That they will come when that happens. But while we live in this in-between state where we, we look to the future hope of Jesus' return, but we still live in a world where there is an incredible amount of work to do. There's a lot of darkness that needs to be lit up. We have to know that the pointiness of those things can and should lose their sting. Even death, according to Paul and Corinthians, it can no longer hurt us because death in the physical body is a transition to eternity. They might be sharp and they might nick us at times, but none of these things can remove the power and the authority of who Jesus is in us. None of these things can separate us from his love and his goodness and his grace because they no longer hold an ultimate power over us. They bow to the risen Savior. When our knee is bent to him, everything we deal with is also bent to him. And that's the beauty of submission here. We don't bow ourselves to a malevolent king who wants to take advantage of us. When we bend the knee, like Paul says in Philippians, we literally now have the power of the king behind us. He raises us up to walk in a newness of life with the full authority of the kingdom of God behind us. And this is all done because of his broken body and his spilt blood on the cross. He makes a way for us to wear the helmet of salvation. And so no matter where you find yourself today, how encouraged or discouraged or whatever you are in between those two poles, turn your eyes upon Jesus this morning. Dwell upon the truth that his death has given us this amazing helmet to wear. Let him right now place it upon your head. If you are without it or it's crooked or you have shelved it, ask God to reseat that upon your head and let it lead you to what it was designed to do to this unrivaled hope, peace, and fullness of life in the past, the present, and the future. And that can only come through Christ. And when we wear that helmet, we are given everything we need to stand firm against whatever comes our way. So ask yourself this morning, when it comes to the helmet of salvation, what is Jesus saying to you, and what is it you will do about it?